trails of troubles, rows of battles, fans of victory, we shall walk. Welcome once again to She Walks with Carly Blaylock and Sharon Bowers, and you're tuning in to W. EHC 90.7 and we are excited to be here today. One of our previous shows we uh, neither Carly nor I, I let me speak for me I'm not an athlete and I don't think Carly's an athlete. Carly's <laughs> yeah you are. Carly's a uh, one of those horse people. What's it called Carly? <laughs> An equestrian. <laughs> an equestrian. Yeah, Carly is uh, an equestrian. So let me not speak for Carly. But last show, one of our previous shows, we talked about the whole issue between uh, Angel Reese and um, Caitlin. Can't think of what her last name is. Caitlin. Anyway, uh, about the whole thing about the hand gesture. And so as we were talking about it, we we started thinking about what might be the impetus for this or what might be the root of this. And so we wanted to talk a little bit about the white gaze and maybe give a, a definition of the white gaze and, and talk about how it impacts our workplace and just about everything we do. But Carly, welcome. It's good to see you. Good to see you too. So we could do the Wikipedia definition just to start. Uh, our listeners always like a definition. And, and I want to talk a little bit more about it from a historical perspective. But the Wikipedia definition says that the white gaze is the assumption that the default reader or observer is coming from a perspective of someone who identifies as white or that people of color sometimes feel the need to take into account the white reader or observer's reaction. And it talks a little bit about various authors and color of color describe it as the voice in their head that reminds them that their writing, their characters, their plot choices are going to be judged by white readers and that the reader or viewer by default is white. And that reminds me of, um, we'll talk a little bit more about it, but Toni Morrison is one of my first people who uh, I remember reading an article where she said that she had been asked by someone, I don't know, the New York Times or somebody in, a, in an interview, was she ever going to write anything about white people? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the assumption was that what she was writing about wasn't valid. And the fact that her characters were black was a problem for the the dominant group because they felt like the writing she was doing was not writing. So I, I just remember that being one of the first places that I actually heard about uh, her having to say, you know, I don't have to write about white people for my writing to be good. Yeah, absolutely. And I think it it also, um, you know, not just in like novel writing or books, but, you know, we see it even in TV shows and movies, music, where when someone is talking about their own experiences, particularly if that someone is um, a black person or you know someone from the LGBT community or whoever, because it's not centering straight white maleness, mm -hmm. it's like, oh, well, I can't really identify with that. And it's like, you can't identify with a human telling a human story? <laughs> right. What do you mean you can't identify with that? At Toni Morrison, one of the things that she said, I forget what she wrote, some kind of, uh, I think it's the pieces I am. But anyway, in that, one of the things that she said was that she felt like when she was writing all the time, there was this little white man standing on her shoulder, oh, looking over to make sure that what she wrote was white enough. And she said what was really freeing or liberating for her was she just knocked him off her shoulder <laughs> and, and continued to write, you know, because 
this white gaze, if you will, this white centered normative behavior, it shows up everywhere. Yeah, it does. There's an article by 14 East, which is an arts magazine um, called Beware of the White Gaze. Mm. And there's a one of the quotes from the article is black American culture has always stood below the scrutinizing eyes of white supremacy. And I think that's exactly right. And, you know, even thinking about like Toni Morrison having to write, you know, seeing that kind of like white gaze over her shoulder and then thinking like, oh, I need to explain this, right? Like I can't use certain words because, you know, maybe white culture is not going to understand what those words are, right? I have to use certain, you know, I have to describe things. I have to, you know, make sure that I'm not being too forceful. And then she's like, no, I'm just going to write my story and my truth and everybody's going to have to get over it. <laughs> Well, and and we won't, we'll talk about this another time. I know we will, Carly, because I know you and I know me, but it's one of those things that necessitates saying Black Lives Matter. Yeah, <laughs> you know, uh, it, it's like having this idea. I think it was Toni Morrison that said that uh, it's like Black lives have no meaning and no, no depth without the white gaze. And so this whole conceptualization, you know, is that, in general, it's a cisgender, heterosexual, white male. Right. And that's the lens from which we are expected to look at our world. And if we don't look at our world that way, then something is inherently wrong, quote unquote, with what we're doing. And it shows up everywhere. It shows up in our workplace. I, uh, I'm a United Methodist pastor, and uh, we often, we we're, there's a governing body that says when people are ready to be ordained. And so there was this situation where there was a, a very pro-Black woman who was uh, becoming ordained and she wrote her paperwork. You have to write this paperwork up. So she wrote her paperwork up. And uh, so those of us who review them and look at their stuff and say it's it merits, yes, credentialing or not, that's kind of we're the credentialing body. And so there was a white woman there. And so when she read this black woman's work, she actually said to her, I don't really get this. Tell it to me like you would a white woman. No. That <laughs> to me, doesn't that blow you away, Carly? That is the epitome of the white gaze. Exactly. I mean, that is a perfect example. Perfect, real life, up close example that I've experienced. And so, you know, you can imagine I was outraged that that would happen. And so, you know, we saw the need to bring somebody in from Chicago and do a, you know, a culture sensitivity training for the people that are making these decisions. But that's one time when we did that. But those decisions have been made many years before, and they'll be made many years after without the benefit of the sensitivity or the diversity training, you know, so the white gaze it's everywhere. And, you know, the expectation is the way we speak, all, it's in everything. You know, your your dialect is questioned and looked at through the lens of the white gaze. Is it white enough? Sometimes people say things like, oh, you sound white, like it's complimentary. Yeah, 100%. And we've had <laughs> conversations with our work with um, DEI and B about, you know, AAVE um, being perfectly valid and shouldn't be something that is corrected or like that, you know, oh, you're speaking, you know, we need to correct the way you're speaking. You need to speak correctly. You need to speak proper English. Like, no, that is, that's extremely racist. Yes. Or we, we see that whole white gaze in the whole hair discrimination thing, that there had to be such a thing as the Crown Act mm -hmm. to allow 
Black women in particular, but Black people, to wear their hair the way they choose to wear their hair without having to have it vetted with the notion of it being unprofessional or how professional is it by people who don't even have the same hair texture, who couldn't wear their hair like that if they wanted to, you know? <laughs> exactly. And I think it goes back to this idea that, you know, so much of the, I know we were talking sort of about media because we were talking about Toni Morrison and, you know, creating um, works of literature, but so much of the stories that we are shown, and we, we know that storytelling creates empathy. We know that media helps to create empathy, to help people to, you know, step into an experience that is not their own. Mm -hmm. But so much of the media that we take in as Americans is written by white people, produced by white people, starring white people. Um, there's been a big conversation about the show Friends recently because, you know, Friends supposedly takes place in New York and yet the main core cast is all white. And yeah. there are very few black characters in the show um, throughout its run. And even when you think about like background characters and characters, the other characters interact with at their office or, you know, whatever, they're almost all white. And again, it goes back to like, this was one of the biggest shows to ever be on air in the 90s and early 2000s. And yet there are very few Black people in that show. And yet it's in New York. And again, it goes back to like, we're telling these stories, but we're not including, um, we're not including Black voices in those stories. And then when we do have like Living Single, oh, mm -hmm. it's, it's a Black show, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Instead of like, okay, so why is Friends a show for everyone, but Living Single is a Black show? Right. Right. And I think that's, again, that's that whole power thing. And that's how that white gaze, you know, materializes, how it shows up as a stereotype. And and it shows up, like you said, in the media, it shows up in the workplace, it shows up everywhere. It shows up in the clergy, mm -hmm. in the church. You know, you you if you do not fit this, if you don't look like this, then you're not acceptable. Uh, there was a term, I don't know if you've been introduced to it, Car Carly, you probably have, you're so versed in this, but I was just recently introduced to it and it was called the bamboo ceiling. Had you heard of that? I've not heard of it, but it was the whole um, way that the the white gaze, uh, what it does for Asian employees. And, mm -hmm. and it, it says primarily uh, it's perceived, the assumption is that the Asian worker doesn't possess the skills and abilities that are typically associated with leadership. And they said the problem lies in the fact that Asians, along with other racialized communities, are being measured based on white and Eurocentric scale. And I thought about that because I had been giving a reference for uh, an Asian woman. And one of the people, it was a white woman that was interviewing her, doing the reference with me for her. And she said, some of my colleagues thought that she was a little um, low assertive. And I was just wondering, could you speak to that? And man, I blasted. <laughs> yeah, because you shouldn't even have followed up on that. You know what I'm saying? And that was so stereotypical, you know, to say that you thought this Asian woman was low assertive. And could I speak to that? And so I just blasted them about what I knew about this Asian woman and about how, no, she was extremely high assertive and very affirming mm -hmm. for people and for equality and all of that. But, you know, it, it, it just it just goes to show you that this white measuring stick, this white gaze is used in every aspect. And for the most part, it is totally debilitating and crippling. Right. And I think this article kind of adds to the definition that you had in the beginning 
you know, basically saying that it's white ethnocentrism and that, mm -hmm. you know, um, the idea of one's own culture in this case being, you know, white is the standard of goodness, is the standard that we should all be measured against. That it, you know, your own experience is the way that you speak, the way that you view media, the way that you view the world around you is what is correct. And everything else is either a subgenre or is outside the norm. And although we can respect it, quote unquote, you know, it's not part of what is the standard. And again, it's like that applies to literally everything. Every single thing, Carly. And, you know, how how do we resist that? You know, we talk about dismantling and deconstructing, but how do we resist the white gaze? Because uh, recently I was, I ran for Bishop, uh, United Methodist Bishop in the Southeastern jurisdiction. And I mean, I had to call that into my, uh, you know, when I succeeded, I had uh, my secession speech. I had to, I had to say that, you know, we're under the tyranny. I called it the tyranny of the white gaze because it's the violence that's attached to it. It's discriminatory and it, it prevents people from advancing. So it's not just, well, it's the white gaze is as it's defined, but I further define it from a, a critical race perspective as the tyranny, because violence is attached to the white gaze. If you don't me measure up, then you don't get the promotion. If you're not white enough, then, you know, you're not going to get the leading role, all of those kinds of things. And you hear it and you see it all the time you know, from the perspective of no matter how many multicultural efforts that people put forth, it, it still is measured based on whiteness. Yeah, no, you're exactly right. And I can't help thinking about, you know, I think you mentioned Black Lives Matter earlier. And, you know, that, again, the whole movement is based on this idea of dismantling that white ethnocentrism, right? And that Black lives do matter. And, you know, your experience as a white person dealing with law enforcement is very different than a Black person's experience dealing with law enforcement. And there are reasons for that. And so much of that is tied in with obviously systemic racism, but then this whole white gaze piece. Oh, yeah. And 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 the whole critical race theory, the whole piece behind, you know, we're not going to see this. We're not going to talk. The story that's being told, if it's not a white person's story, we're not going to tell it. So much so that we've, you know, mis we've misappropriated critical race and critical race theory and its original origin and what it was for. And, and so this whole, instead of us looking at this counter narrative as being something that's good, we're seeing it as something that challenges the status quo. And so we just don't want it. We don't want a part of it. And so this is that whole, this is to me, when we hear our politicians talking about what we won't teach, what we won't do. And this whole, they've got it wrapped up in this whole CRT piece, which is so wrong in and of itself, but it. let's just, let's just keep going down that trajectory. That's the white gaze. I'm going to look and tell you what is acceptable for you to know about and that, and only that and anything else or looking at it from a different perspective is totally not acceptable. Yeah. I mean, bringing up history as well, you know, I mean, so much of what American students are taught in school is a white version of history. It's a white centric version of history. And not only are incredibly key moments left out of that telling, right? But there are so many things taught that are just blatantly not true. 
And then, you know, you get out into the real world or you go to, you know, go to college where you're having more open discussions. And it's like, oh, I'm woefully unprepared to have these conversations, um, which is such a disservice. And it's only getting worse with all the laws that are being passed. I know. And and maybe, Carly, maybe we need to do a show about CRT and and how we can resist CRT. Um because I, I remember my nephew, he's 12 now. So this was a couple of years ago. He was in elementary school and he was supposed to, they had some, I forget what the title was, but the teacher would let you add a fact, add an interesting fact and you got more points or something. And so we added an interesting fact. It was about the um, the Revolutionary War and we added an interesting fact. And the interesting fact was about Crispus Attucks being there present, you know, at the Revolutionary War mm-hmm. and being African and African-American. And she sent him a note back and said that it that was not a true fact. There were no African-Americans at the Revolutionary War. Can you believe that? I cannot believe that. <laughs> His teacher. And so I had to send her an article. And then she said, I'm sorry, I did not know that. But can you believe that? His interesting fact was question one, because he found and gave, you know, here it here is a person who was part of the Revolutionary War. She didn't bother to look it up. She right. just said it couldn't be right because there were no African-Americans who were part of the Revolutionary War. And I thought, I'd just be dang. And this is a teacher. Well, that that's my first thing is you didn't look it up for yourself. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> if a student writes that and you genuinely don't know, maybe it's time to educate yourself. <laughs> right, right. But but she did not. And then when I took her to task, she sent back and said, I'm sorry, that was news. I did not know. Jeez. And I... thank you so m- much for helping Zai bring that to the class. This is a teacher. <laughs> I, know. I know. That's what I'm saying. Like, I, there were so many moments that I had when I was going through my college career and, you know, that I would say something in class and be corrected by my professor because I was wrong. And I was repeating something I had learned either in high school or middle school or whatever. Uh-huh. And it's a very humbling experience. <laughs> but it's also, <laughs> like... Well, now I'm frustrated and upset because I was not taught the truth. And, um, you know, and and this is what we're doing with all of these new laws about what we can and cannot teach. And I completely agree with you. I think we definitely need to do an episode or or several on critical race theory because the people that are using it as a blanket term or in a derogatory way have no idea what critical race theory is or how it's applied. Um, And I think it would be really good for us to do that. And I also think about these book bans that are going on as well. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And again, you know, going back to that storytelling piece, that is a huge way that we learn empathy. And especially as young people, I always read a lot. I've always been a big book reader. And I remember, you know, reading all kinds of books written by people who didn't look like me or have the same lived experiences as me. And that helped expand my worldview so much. And I know that like thinking that other young people are being denied that. And, you know, a lot of the books that are being banned are books by black authors, by LGBT authors, mm-hmm. you know, and like you're depriving students of being able to step into someone else's experience, even if it's just for a few minutes and being able to empathize and to grow that center of their brain. And like, I just, it just breaks my heart to think that that's not something that is being encouraged that, you know, people are so scared of that of challenging, you know, the white gaze, the, you know, ethnocentrism of that dominant culture, 
that they're not even going to let a children, you know, children read a book. Right. That's a, you know, that article you mentioned earlier, what was it? 14, 14, 14 East magazine. I think it was that article you mentioned earlier. One of the things that, that I saw when I looked at that, they, they said something I think was important. They said that the white gaze is omnipresent and white people must hold themselves accountable Mm -hmm. when consuming black content. And, and I think they might've been you know, referring to a white woman comes on stage and starts using the N-word and all this other kind of stuff might have been part of that. But when you look at it, as you mentioned earlier, from an ethnocentrism perspective and, and you know, ethnocentrism is easily defined. I would define it as thinking that one's own ethnic group is better than any other and thinking that it needs to be central to everything, hence the ethnocentrism, that it is central. It's the lens from whence we we look. And uh, you can you just imagine, Carly, and I'm not putting you on the spot, but can you imagine being Black in a white person's world in the United States? Mm. Everything centers on whiteness. Yeah, yeah. So we're, to, we're talking about the white gaze, but it's, it's the gaze is like like the person said, it's omnipresent. It is everywhere. It is far reaching. It is considered the standard. And so you're always, in, and that's why, you know, like uh, uh, Derek Bell and Isabel Wilkerson, some of those people who talk about the caste system and see race as a caste system, it's almost like everything you do is held to the standard of whiteness. For a Black woman, your beauty, is held to the standard of whiteness. You know, it's everywhere. It's it's omnipresent. <laughs> yeah, no, I, I completely agree. And it, it's in everything. When you start to really dig into it, it, it almost becomes absurd because it's literally everywhere. There was an article recently, and I'll see if I can find it. Maybe we can talk about it, written about why do we eat three meals a day? That is mm-hmm. a colonizer thing. That is that yes, comes from yes. <laughs> that comes from European white eth- ethnocentric culture. Literally, the times of day that we eat comes from that, and mm-hmm. it's, just, it's everywhere. It's in everything. Um, we've talked about beauty standards before on this show. We'll probably revisit that conversation again. But you're exactly right. You know those European centric um, beauty standards that you know all women are held to. It, it's just it's everywhere and it's unescapable it's just in everything and and that's why you know when we talk about empathy and we talk about somebody asked me the other day and and i i forget how i answered it but i i remember answering it from the gut and i was just saying is that you know stop invalidating what i say to you mm-hmm. you know stop seeing it as not value added it is my truth it is my experience and therefore you must take it into consideration. And we we don't do that from, you know, uh, sexism, you know, women, our, our lived experience is not valid. Racism, black and brown people, our lived experience is not valid. And so to stop this white gaze that's overarching and overreaching, it has its tentacles in everything. It, it's so necessary uh, for people to hear people and to honor their lived experience. And it would be the same from a human sexuality perspective. You know, we so want to tell everybody what is good, what is right, what is wholesome, what is just, but it's told through the lens of the dominant group, which in this case, as we're talking about today, it's the white gaze. It's everywhere. Yeah. I was watching the Country Music Awards and um, I told my sister, I said, 
if the Country Music Awards do not ask, uh, I forget what they're called. It's a group out of Mississippi. They they did the the song that Dolly Parton, Jolene's song. I can't think what their name is right now. But anyway, it's a music musical group, a black, three black women. And one of them's a large black woman. The lead singer is a large black woman and her two cousins. One cousin wears uh, her hair cut extremely short. And the other one is, is just pretty uh, traditional looking quote unquote woman. But um, black woman, let me say. Oh, I almost had the name of their group. But I, I told my sister, I said, we're watching the Country Music Awards. If they do not have them on, then I'll know we've not made any progress because they have, have a biracial guy who was helping to host who won a couple of awards, he and his biracial wife. And then they had a, another black guy who won, you know, a couple of awards, but here were these three black women. And I told my sister, I said, if they don't offer them or bring them on this country music award, then I just, I can't see that we've made any progress at all. So they actually did bring them on and they sang like, it wasn't even five minutes. It was like two minutes. It wasn't even their whole song, but it was just a little cameo. And they said something about, they sang a little bit about Jolene. And then they they went off. They never did anything else. And I'm saying all that to say, you know, this white gaze is in all everything that has to do with Black artists, everything that has to do with Black music. It's always there. Yeah. No, you're exactly right. And I think uh, what you were saying earlier about, you know, honoring people's lived experiences, this article says, um, too often white people tell black people, especially black women, that any critical reactions to oppressive actions are not valid. And mm-hmm. this, this article also uses the term gaslighting, which is exactly what that is. Right, right, right. I mean, exactly. And and many times, you know, and that's, I think that's why it's so difficult for us to move past, you know, uh, this blatant active racism is because people who could and people who have the power and the privilege refuse to acknowledge, hence the whole issue about the CRT, people who could say, this is our history, this is our history, this is who we are, but this is not, this is who we were, but this is not who we are, or this is not who we are ever going to be to do that. Instead, they just want to suppress it and say, let's don't talk about it. Right. Yeah, you're exactly right. (laughs) I don't know. Um, I think that this conversation is extremely important and I would love for us to continue to talk about it. Does that mean we're out of time, Carly? (laughs) We're almost out of time. Um, We have a few more minutes, but I think it's really important for us to continue the conversation Um, because you can look again, like we said, I mean, this is everywhere. We could talk about beauty standards. We could talk about the workplace. We could talk about everywhere that this shows up. Right. And, and just this whole whiteness piece, this whole pervasive post, you know, or colonial, whatever it is, how it still maintains itself, you know, uh, and it, I believe it maintains itself in the everyday practices of the white gaze. We still, the, the, the colonizer is still in control. Mm-hmm. because and we see it through the white gaze because that's the lens that our whole world is looked at and looked through and you know um if anybody deviates from that look that gaze then something's wrong yeah and you know and so we're we're judging people we're we're trying to say if you can be vetted i mean i think sometimes on you know we could even talk about the white gaze in the workplace as just a a uh, a show of its own you know because i think the way that it's manifested you know is 
it's everywhere as that article that you you brought to the table said but um you know we see it in our political situation we see it everywhere yeah, absolutely. And I think it would be good for us to also have some conversations about the male gaze. Obviously, those two things are connected deeply, but there is also a male gaze. And it, yes. you know, a lot of times people talk about that in terms of beauty standards, which is definitely a thing. But there's also just this male gaze that permeates everything that women experience and that women do. And so I think it would be good for us to also add that into the conversation and continue to talk about this stuff because it's so important. Oh, I think so too. And, 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 you know, yeah, getting to black and brown bodies and all of those kinds of things, how that white gaze, when that, when the article that you brought today talked about that it is omnipresent, that really struck me because there's nothing you can talk about that it's not the benchmark for. Yeah. And I think our writers like, uh, many of our writers, Toni Morrison, you know, they were trying to get away from that. Yeah. Uh, James Baldwin, you know, many of them were doing everything they could to say, no, I'm going to write out of my lived experience and there's nothing you can do about it. But I remember seeing an article with uh, James Baldwin where he said he had to end up going to um, France in order to even be vaguely recognized because and 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 to be free to write. Yeah. And of course, you know, that would have just been a form of freedom, but he felt more liberated there to write. And so, because here the oppression was his human sexuality, as well as, you know, him writing about Black things. Right. Yeah, 100%. Well, I've I've enjoyed talking about this, and maybe we can talk a little bit in the future about how to try to deconstruct this white gaze, because that's what we're all about when we're talking about intersectional feminists, and we're talking about this whole liberation piece. We're talking about getting rid of all the oppressive systems that you know seem to sustain our social world so you know how how do we deconstruct this white gaze how how do we get it out of our daily lives so that it's not so prevalent i i don't know do you know carly (laughs) i think we'll have to explore that in the future (laughs) Um, because i don't know and also we're out of time but (laughs) as always as always well we would love to hear your thoughts and you know please let us know what you would like us to continue to talk about but we are going to kind of follow this thread for a little bit um, because i think this is so important and so much a part of what is important to both sharon and myself so thank you for joining us with this um this conversation today and we will see you again next week take care Pass of the victory, we shall walk.